2: Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, a new show for and about people who think big. This week's podcast was recorded at the Royal Institution in London, where Hannah McInnes and a live audience attempted to sift science from sexism. Her guests were neuroscientist Gina Rippon and psychologist Simon Baron-Cohen.
1: Thank you very, very much for coming. It's wonderful to see so many of you here, a complete sellout, a totally packed room, which is, of course, no surprise to anyone given our very compelling debate this evening and, of course, two such highly esteemed guests, two true leaders in their fields. Some of you may have tuned in to BBC Radio 4's Today programme, who kindly trailed the debate, the five-minute version, but you're all here for the full live thing, so well done for getting your hands on such a coveted ticket. I'm really thrilled to welcome you all here on behalf of the How-To Academy for what I know is going to be a fascinating fascinating hour, reigniting a debate that's been hotly contested by science throughout the ages, Uh, hotly contested but shows very little sign of cooling down and in fact only gains more intrigue with scientific development uh, and progress and, and experimentation. The question then is, are men's and women's brains essentially Different. Many studies throughout the ages have shown that they are, but are they based on true, proven scientific facts, or are they essentially trying to justify a sexist status quo? And is that even the right question to be asking? Uh, is it a, a too binary to look at male and female brains? Is that too simplistic and outdated? Uh, and in fact, more broadly, are essential differences between male and female behavior part of our innate human nature, or are are they a product of social conditioning and a very heavily gendered world that we live in? As mentioned, we have gathered two of the finest brains that we could have found. Um, Of course, one male and one female. Um, to, To talk through that for you this evening, we've called the event the gendered brain. Men and women do not have essentially different brains. And so arguing for the motion, we have Professor Gina Rippon, who's an international researcher in cognitive neuroscience at the University of Aston in Birmingham. And she's also the author of this new, new book, The Gendered Brain, which seeks to shatter the myth of the female brain um, and calls uh, the idea of essential difference neuro-nonsense that's been promulgated by centuries of neurosexism. Arguing then against the idea and that men and women do have essentially different brains, we have Simon Baron-Cohen, who's the Professor of Psychology and Psychiatry at the University of Cambridge, and of Cambridge, indeed, and who has (laughs) written um, 500, I think, scientific research papers into psychological sex differences and autism, importantly, and is also the author of numerous books, including a book that you could also buy this evening, I think, The Essential Difference. So uh, I wasn't exaggerating when I said we couldn't really be in better hands. Just to explain a little bit about how the evening goes, Each of our speakers will have 15 minutes to put their case forward. We'll start with Gina and then we'll have Simon. They will then have another five or so minutes to each rebut or refute and react to each other's arguments. And after that, it'll be over to you uh, for your questions. So please do store them up. It's a really unique opportunity to ask them here this evening. So again, thank you all very, very much for coming. Uh, And to start, I will invite Gina to the podium.
3: Good evening, brain owners, multitaskers and map readers, empathizers and systemizers, possibly even Martians and Venusians. There are a few absolute certainties in science, but I feel I'm on safe enough grounds to state that everyone here has a brain. What I'm going to try to convince you in the next 15 minutes is that your brain is special, it is unique and different from your neighbors not because you're female and he's male or the other way around, but because even if your neighbour happens to be your identical twin, I don't know if there are any identical twins here this evening, you will have lived a different life from your neighbour, have had different experiences and encountered different attitudes, and this will be reflected in the brain you're currently hosting in your head and will continue to be reflected in that brain until the end of your life. The motion before us includes two of the most commonly used labels we use to describe ourselves, male and female. I think everyone in this room will believe that they have a clear idea of what that means. And I hope to show that even with what feels like that one secure bit of knowledge about ourselves, things are a bit more complicated than that. So this wasn't actually the first slide, but we'll go with the one that we've got here. Uh, <laughs> this is a pictorial representation of what we're talking about. That the chain of argument that informs the title of today's debate. That there are two types of bodies, male and female, uh, determined by genetic factors, and thus two types of brains. So, this aspect of the argument is the basis of the essential claim in tonight's matter of debate. We need to pause and think what do we mean by essential? One definition of an essential belief is that all members of a category share fundamental or essential qualities or essences that make them what they are. Essentialist thinking involves beliefs that the basis of such is natural, unchangeable, and grounded in deep-seated biological factors. So the reason I'm drawing your attention to this particular link here is that this is a belief that there is a firm chain between the bodies that we have and the brains that we have. And I think this really is what the debate is about tonight, that two different types of bodies, two different types of brains. This then results, it is claimed, in two different portfolios of skills, aptitudes, personalities. I don't know if you can see those, but it's a kind of representation of claims that um, uh, men don't listen and when, women can't read maps. Men are empathic, men are systemizers, etc. Having been the rounds of various studios today, I'm constantly being told so what is this about men not being able to uh, show their emotions and women being multitaskers and men being map readers? So we all have clear views of what this means, what this chain of argument is. And there are also issues about the kind of roles that people play. And in order to illustrate this, I've taken quotes from Simon's book. The way in which the. (laughs) So we have this link here, a firm claim, which he does qualify later, and I'll come back to that. The female brain is predominantly hardwired for empathy, and the male brain is predominantly hardwired for understanding and building systems. And the consequence of that is a range of different skills. And we probably won't have much chance until we have questions and answers to get into that aspect, because we're really interested in that part there. Primarily, this is a debate about differences. Where they come from, what they mean, and crucially, how fixed and unchangeable they are. Perhaps we could even call them strong and stable. (laughs) So there's three points that I want you to think about in making up your mind on this issue. First of all, the science. This is a science debate, and we need to start by looking at the story that science is telling us. Are men's and women's brains different? Now, I should begin by clarifying to all that I'm not a sex difference denier, as I have been described, a bit like a climate change denier, presumably with the same consequences for civilization. <laughs> I am aware that there are profound anatomical differences between males and females, uh, helpfully pointed out by various trolls who like to send me JPEGs of... <laughs> I'm gonna I would also acknowledge that there are gender gaps in the world, in achievement in all spheres, especially science, that I'll touch on, but also in mental health problems such as depression, self-harm, eating disorders, and in the field that both Simon and I work in, in autism. So there are differences that we need to explain. But will we find the explanation by looking at brains? Now as a neuroimager I'm of course aware of innumerable studies that having divided their cohort of images into two groups male and female hitting sex as the independent variable in their analysis package you can find some differences in some brains between some men and some women. In fact, the next half hour could be taken up with Simon and I, what I call human brain studies poker, where we swap examples of studies that have found differences, counter them with studies that haven't. Having had a sneak preview courtesy of the Today programme this morning, I could guess that Simon might offer a recent study on a human biobank data, which reported clear differences in grey matter volume and brain structures, such as uh, the hippocampus and the amygdala. I could then see his biobank study, perhaps en route pointing out that the average age of the participants was over 60, and you might like to wonder what different life experiences had done to those brains. But I could anyway raise him to other studies reporting no such differences. I could also note that scientific publishing currently focuses on publishing studies where differences are found. We don't get to hear so much about those where no differences between the sexes are found. So rather than drag you through uh, lots and lots of different papers, what kind of conclusion do I feel that we can draw from these studies? Simon Waywell, disagree. The key thing is that there's no one aspect of the brain in in key structures or grey-white matter ratios, in patterns of connectivity, whatever you like to look at, that has yet been found that will reliably differentiate the brain of a woman from the brain of a man, apart from one. On average, men's brains are bigger, but men are, on average, and that is a phrase we'll come back to, bigger than women. Their hearts, lungs, livers and kidneys are bigger than women's. And I don't think the Royal Institution is likely to be having a debate on that difference anytime soon. Once you correct for those size differences, almost all the alleged sex differences that had earlier been found actually tend to disappear. The same is also true of baby brains, which of course is something... Where we should really be looking if we believe these are innate differences and there's something that starts right at the beginning. You can, in the same way, and I did review lots of studies for the book that I've just written, find one lab which will report quite strong sexual dimorphism in a baby brain between boys' brains and girls' brains. They're usually very small cohorts, so we have to be careful with the conclusions we draw. But even the same labs, three years later, will run a different. A set of babies through the same kind of studies and find no differences. I went to a conference recently where there was a poster which unsurprisingly attracted my attention. It's called Time to Dump the Dimorphism. Males and female brains are far more similar than different across multiple measures of structure and function. Is there a typical, at least a typical male brain or, or female brain, some kind of template that we might compare things to? Well, recent work by um, Daphna Joel uh, and her team in Tel Aviv has looked for this very issue, looked at over 100 different structures. It's quite difficult. Hopefully, you'll get an impression of, of what we're looking at here. 100 different structures, some more typical in brains from men and some more typical in brains from women, looking at over 1,000 different brains and found that brains are, in fact, a mosaic of different features, less than 6% of those 1,000 brains had predominantly male or predominantly female features, and none had all-male or all-female. So I think that this is a really good pictorial representation, that every brain is different from every other brain, regardless of whether they're from men or women. There is another caveat, which I'm sure Simon will agree with, that even we neuroscientists have to confess that we don't really know what any of these differences mean. We might find... Bigger amygdala, smaller hippocampus, bigger bridge of fibres between the two different brains. But it is quite a big jump to say what this means in terms of behaviour. So even if we do find these structures, we don't really know if that explains the kind of behaviours that we're interested in, that we're looking at. That is, in fact, the basis of this whole debate. Men and women are different, so they must have different brains. If we don't know that link, it's important to bear that in mind. So the human brain... Pink, blue, 50 shades of grey matter? We really cannot currently claim that men's and women's brains are consistently and distinctly different. There is another aspect of brains that I will touch on, uh, but I will acknowledge Simon's expertise in this area, so I'll only mention it briefly, and that is hormones. A key difference in male and female fetuses is that before birth, male babies are marinated in higher levels of testosterone than female babies, with resultant differences in their reproductive hardware. But does this also result in differences in their brains? very powerful lobby would claim yes. But where are we looking? If we haven't found any key differences in the brains of men and the brains of women, where should we be looking for the differences that this testosterone causes? So it's difficult to establish a brain-biology-behaviour link. A lot of the research in this area is carried out on animals, which is probably not an appropriate group to be looking at. But often what researchers do when they're working with humans is they go straight from hormones to behaviour, bypassing brains altogether, but inferring differences if they find behaviour differences. But all too often, the behavior they're looking at, or rather how they describe it, reveals something about the particular take they have on this research. So we have measures of gender-appropriate behavior to match to varying levels of prenatal testosterone. We have a tomboy index to investigate the behavioral consequences in girls of being exposed prenatally to too much testosterone. So there does seem to be a strong element of begging the question here, which we should probably bear in mind. Now, remember, we're looking at differences which are supposedly fixed and unchangeable. A breakthrough in the 21st century is that our brains a, are attached to the world, which has profound differences on those brains, and that our brains are very flexible. They actually change throughout our lives in a way that we never realised. We used to think we had you know, baby brains developed and they became fixed, and we trundled on through life with very much the, the kind of brain that we were born with and that biology had determined. But we now know that the world through which our brains are traveling has a consistent and lifelong impact on our brains. Our brains can change as a function of the education we receive, the experiences, the occupations, the hobbies we have, the sports we play. For example, a study of spatial skills in males and females, a supposedly really robust brain-based sex difference, showed that those sex differences were actually due to video game experience. Women with the same level of such experience were as good at as men at tests of spatial understanding and manipulation. So we need to think that if we're looking at a brain that has been functioning in a world, coming back to the Biobank study, 60-year-old brains, we need to remember that our brains are plastic. Our brains are also wired to be social. We are a hugely socially-influenced species. Indeed, it's claimed that that's the secret of our success. So when studying brain structures or function, it's virtually impossible to tease apart what's come from the world and what's come from biology. And this does start very early. Babies' brains are tuned from birth, possibly even before, to pick up social skills. So nature is not separate from nurture or an alternative to it. It's inseparably entangled with it, which must undermine the conclusions we come to about tonight's um, motion. So that's the science. I would briefly like to say that this is a debate not just about science, but about the communication of that science, which is appropriate given that we're talking in the Royal Institution, the Science Communication Centre above all. We need to consider not just what scientists are saying, particularly in this kind of debate, but how they say it, and what their audiences, readers or other science communicators are hearing. Let's take the phrase, men's and women's brains are, on average, significantly different. Well, if we look at the kind of distribution we're talking about, just let's say here we've got the data from two particular measures. In this particular one, it's the height of men and the height of women. If you plot out the data you get, you get this kind of two overlapping camel humps. You can see that there is a difference, on average, between those populations, but there's also quite a lot of overlap. So knowing that somebody's a man or somebody's a woman might not be very informative. But that's quite a marked difference in height. The kind of sex differences we're talking about are actually very small. They're of that area. So yes, there are little differences here. But if you look at the differences within the groups and the overlap between them, they're quite dramatic. And... Of course, if we're focusing on the male-female difference, we focus on that little difference. We don't focus on the big difference in the two groups. If those two groups are supposedly biologically homogeneous, then why have we got that difference? In popular parlance, the term different implies distinguishable, reliably distinct. All the characters we now know are not true of men's and women's brains. Significant implies meaningful and it would be hard to know where a man or a woman might score on any of those kind of sex difference studies. It's also the case that essential implies absolutely necessary and extremely important, which is perhaps why this debate becomes so vitriolic at points. To tie this up, I'd just like to throw into the mix the use of the term male and female. You probably believe that when we talk about male and female brains, we mean the brains from men or the brains from women. Simon himself has rather muddied the water on that one. Having made his firm statement about male and female brains in the opening lines of his book, he later qualifies it with what I find a rather startling caveat that, and I quote, your sex does not dictate your brain type. Not all men have the male brain, not all women have the female brain. I think I'll leave you to puzzle that out, and Simon to clarify it later. (coughs) To finish then briefly, this really matters. This is not just a scientific debate. This is a stereotype about males and females which informs how males and females feel about themselves. It works as a filter and research. The very field that Simon and I work in, in autism spectrum disorders, long been described as a male disorder. And more recently, we're starting to realize that that means that there are large numbers of females on the spectrum who've been missed, who are not diagnosed, do not inform research. So thinking of brains or other categories as male or female, however defined, is limiting and misleading. I'll very briefly show you some consequences of beliefs that women and men have different brains. Of course, you'd think this is something that way back in the 19th century, neurologists looking for differences, believing that men and women are inferior. All of these were quotations about why women shouldn't be doing science, because they don't have the right kind of brain. So we have the Google Memo, we have Larry Summers, the then head of, of Harvard, we have the Google Memo author, we have Alessandra Strumio, the physics professor in, in uh, CERN, all of them claiming that women's brains were different, not suited for science, so science shouldn't be wasting its time on educating women. So I think it's not just an academic debate we're having here. It's a debate which is really important. It's a debate which informs what people feel about themselves and what other people believe. So brain owners, the choice is yours. You could support me in my bid to show that men's and women's brains are not essentially different. Are we really looking at this inevitable evolution of a brain, born small and tiny, perhaps slightly different, One goes down a nicely gendered blue channel, becomes armoured, resilient, can become a leader of man, whereas the other's a bit pink and marshmallowy, lands up a bit princessy and a bit emotional. (laughs) So that is what we say if we think men's and brains are essentially different. Or do we believe that everybody's brain is attached to the world? Every brain is different from every other brain, and that's what is important. So hopefully you'll vote for me, and go with our six-year-old picture. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you very, very much. Thank you. And now, Simon, if you'd like to take to the podium for your 20 minutes. Thank you.
0: First of all, thank you, Gina. And uh, I listened with interest to all your points. I think, uh, although this debate is set up in a very binary way, I think we're going to find that we agree more than we disagree. But let's see. So my argument is going to be, Really, is there any role for biology when we're thinking about sex differences in the mind and the brain? Gina's book largely argues that differences are the result of living in a gendered world and that there are no essential differences, as in uh, differences that would predate living in a gendered culture. I'm going to argue that uh, the role of culture is no doubt important, Um, So on that we agree uh, that we can't really deduce much about nature and nurture from the studies of children and adults because they have had a lot of postnatal experience. But there might be a role for biology, and particularly if we look at newborn babies before they've been exposed to culture, and prenatal factors. So there we go. (coughs) So um, has already made this point that... I think no serious scientist would be making claims about sex differences, whether it's from the neck upwards, as it were, uh, the mind or the brain, or the rest of the body, as being binary. Rather, they are average differences when you compare groups of males and groups of females. There's the example of height. If we just take groups of males and females, we find a roughly five and a half inch difference. But you're always going to find... Females who are atypical for their gender, who are taller. And males who are atypical for their gender, who are shorter. So the the idea that men and women, boys and girls, are distinct, to use uh, Gina's term, I think is the wrong way of thinking about it. We've already talked about the UK Biobank. For those of you who don't know what that is, uh, that's a collection of tens of thousands of individuals who are not only having brain scans, but they're also giving DNA, and it's going to be a fantastic resource. It's already proving to be a fantastic resource for scientists. Jean is absolutely right that they tend to be older individuals who've volunteered. I think the eligibility is over 40, but it may well be that the average is even older than that. This is the first release just last year of some of that data, just on 5,216 participants who've all had a brain scan, what we're looking at is white matter in the brain. So these are the major tracts or highways in the brain. And uh, on top are white matter tracts, which are larger in males and females, males than females on average. At the bottom, uh, those that are larger in females than males. Two different types of measures. Uh, you can see the details there, but certainly evidence of average group differences. This slide is also, just as we saw with with Gina's slide, telling us that there are overlapping differences in total brain volume, total grey matter volume, and total white matter volume. And these are found even after you control for things like total surface area, height, cortical thickness, and so forth. So the differences are there, but this kind of study won't tell us where they've come from. If you look at specific brain regions, Gina's already mentioned some of these, like the hippocampus. You can see that's one of the regions where you see a sex difference. Uh, You also see it in the amygdala and the nucleus accumbens. I've just picked out those three. Hippocampus, very much involved in memory, particularly spatial memory. Amygdala, very much involved in emotions and threat detection. And the nucleus accumbens, part of the reward circuitry of the brain. The brain develops in complexity um, from birth through childhood. So you can see here that in the first two years of life, uh, if we just look at on the left, we see neurons really not showing much complexity. But even in the first few months, you can see a growth in complexity as there are more neurons growing and more connections between neurons growing. And if we look at the post-mortem studies of boys and girls males and females, right across life, when you get down to that uh, individual neuronal count, you can see differences. So on average, females have 19.3 billion neurons, but on average, males have 22.8 billion neurons. This is a 16% difference in the number of nerve cells in the brain. So there are these differences, but none of this tells us where the differences have come from. Was it the result of growing up in a gendered world, which it could easily be, or are there other factors at play? We've looked at psychological processes like empathy. In this study, we had 80,000 people take part, about 44,000 women, 43,000 men. And you can see that on average, shown in green there, women were scoring higher on this test of empathy where you have to look at someone's face but particularly the eye eye region of the face and say which of those four words best describes what the person in the photo is thinking or feeling. I've been talking for a minute whilst you've been looking at that photo and the correct answer is dispirited or a bit sad. So if you got that right you did so really on the basis of quite minimal information of emotional expression around the eye region of the face and we observe sex differences in brain activity whilst people are trying to decode facial expressions, with women showing more activity in the left inferior frontal gyrus whilst they're looking at emotional expressions like that. But again, where do these differences come from? It could easily be the result of postnatal experience. We've also looked at what Gina referred to as systemizing, being able to analyse a system which usually involves focusing in on parts within holes to understand how the system works. Here we find a sex difference of a different kind, that on average males are faster at finding that cube hidden in the overall abstract design um, than uh, are women. So males are taking on average 46 seconds, women on average 66 seconds. And again, you see a difference in brain activity Now, in the back part of the brain, the parietal cortex, the visual cortex, with women showing more activity in posterior parietal cortex whilst they're searching for the part within the whole. Just average differences. It's not true of all males and all females, but the group differences do emerge. Most recently, just last year, we uh, published a paper testing over half a million people on tests of empathy, systemizing and autistic traits. These were short questionnaires that people could take part in. And uh, the sample also included 36,000 autistic people, so very big data. And what we found, again shown in this slide, is that um, the axes are not coming out as as written, but both on the the empathy quotient on the top left, the systemizing quotient on the top right and the autism spectrum quotient, a measure of autistic traits, we found sex differences on average. So a lot of overlap, and this is where we are in agreement. More similar than different, but are those differences of interest to scientists, and where might they be coming from? So in my work, I found it useful to plot some of this data from psychology along two independent axes, empathy Along the vertical axis, systemizing along the horizontal axis, finding that if you were to summarize the studies, more females are showing a difference in favor of their empathy over systemizing. That's to say, they're scoring higher on empathy than they are on systemizing, which would be shown in the light blue zone of that graph. And more males are showing a discrepancy in the opposite direction. They're scoring higher on measures of systemizing or understanding systems compared to their scores on measures of empathy. So that's the kind of model. Of course, there are plenty of people in the population that show no difference in their empathy or their systemizing. So they'd be in the white zone on that graph. And in terms of autism, uh, what we've postulated is that people with autism might be below average on tests of empathy but might be anywhere from average to superior on tests of systemizing. So a a larger discrepancy between the two, and you'd expect them to be in the red zone of that chart. And that's sort of what we find when we go out into the population, including very large populations like that half a million sample. You can plot each individual in terms of their score on empathy, and systemizing, and if you just look with the naked eye at these dots, each person represented by a dot, the yellow ones are females in the population, the green ones are males in the population, and the red and purple ones are autistic. So you can see that the clouds uh, do overlap, but they do tend to be more yellow dots at the top left-hand quadrant, more green dots in the middle there, and more red and purple at the bottom right. And actually, if we do a count, you can see that males and females are showing uh, that they occupy different spaces in that chart. So if we looked at individuals who are type E, their empathy is higher than their systemizing. some 40% of females show that profile. We call them brain type. And if you looked at type S individuals where their systemizing is higher than their empathy, about 40% of males show that profile. So none of these findings are true of all males and all females, and I do hope that we're going to end up agreeing on that point. But we are seeing the sexes diverging in interesting ways when we do really large population studies. So now we get down to the kind of nub of it, which is what might be causing these sex differences. I would argue that there's going to be a mix of factors, and I think I heard Gina say that nature and nurture can't really be separated, uh, that they, do, they are very much intertwined. In her book, she argues predominantly for the first two factors. Experience. Our parents may be giving their sons and daughters different types of experiences because we live in a gendered world. That might be true from our teachers and other kinds of social interactions. Culture is the other important source of influence in what Gina calls very plastic brains. And I agree, our brains are indeed very malleable, very plastic. Missing from, at least in her book, is any serious consideration of biological factors. And I'm going to really pick out hormones, but particularly prenatal hormones, which can change your brain development. Genetic effects, some of which may be as uh, on the sex chromosomes, some of which may be scattered across the genome in terms of uh, evidence from heritability. And, of course, there may be other aspects of biology in the environment, such as exposure to physical hazards, which the two sexes may react to differently. I'm going to just focus on, on a couple of those as case studies, newborn babies first, and then prenatal hormones second, and then I'll stop. So in terms of are there sex differences at birth, which would be awkward for the gender experience hypothesis, what is found is that there are indeed differences in overall intracranial volume. It's about a 6% difference, males being larger than females on average, but also a higher number of cortical neurons in males than females. So we saw that across uh, in studies of, of children and adults, but that difference is there even at birth. And that exists even after you control for factors like birth weight. Where there's been the opportunity to look at brain differences in newborn babies in terms of volume of different brain regions, again, what you can see is differences appear, sometimes larger in males, sometimes larger in females, according to the region you look at. So medial temporal cortex, which is uh, involved in sensory processing, but particularly auditory processing, That area is larger in boys, on average. Dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, very much involved in self-control, sometimes called executive function, uh, is a a region that's larger in females. And uh, a particular part of the temporal parietal junction, just where the temporal lobe meets the parietal lobe, again, that is larger in females, and has been associated with social processing, particularly following other people's faces and trying to figure out other people's intentions. So the fact that these differences are present at birth means that whatever the role of culture later on, there must also be some element of prenatal biology. We did a a study looking at newborn babies who were 24 hours old. I'm sure we'll discuss this in a bit more detail but we asked the mothers for their consent for babies to take part, and we presented the babies with either a social stimulus, which was the human face, or a non-social stimulus, that geometric pattern, and simply filmed the baby for how long they looked at each type of stimulus. What you can see is that there were some children who uh, looked equally long at both, but what I've graphed for you is those babies who looked longer at one type of stimulus or the other. So more girls looked longer at the human face compared to boys, and more boys looked longer at the geometric design compared to girls. The fact that this is happening at 24 hours old suggests that whatever we are doing as parents that might shape our sons and daughters differently, or whatever the media is doing, the toy industry... Uh, schools and uh, so forth, uh, there must be some element of prenatal biology. Now, hard critics would say 24 hours is quite a long time <laughs> for, <laughs> for, for culture to be shaping these sex differences. Um, and indeed, in Gina's book, she takes me to task about this experiment. Did we do the experiment right? Uh, might there have been some biases or confounds in the experiment which question the validity of the study? I would simply insert here some, the, the plea for accurate reporting of this single study. First of all, Gina says, why didn't we present both stimuli at the same time, which is one way of testing newborn babies. It's called preferential looking, rather than one and then the other. They're both valid methods of testing babies. The key thing is if you just present one and then the other, you have to counterbalance or randomise the order so that if some babies are getting sleepy... You're not getting order effects, and that's what we did. The second critique that Gina launches in her book about this study is that the scientists were not blind to the baby's gender. Well, actually, we took a lot of effort to remain blind. We asked the mothers not to tell us the gender of their baby. Uh, We had judges looking just at where the baby was looking, at the face or the non-social stimulus. But then we took the precaution to get a second set of judges just to look at the videotapes of the baby's eye movements, not in the maternity ward but back in the lab, so that there was no chance of the experimenter being uh, inadvertently biased by knowing the baby's gender. So all of these details, I've highlighted them here, are important, they're technical issues, but the case stands on the findings. Gina pointed out in her book that a good percentage of both males and females at 24 hours old showed no preference, and that's absolutely right. But if you looked at those who showed a preference for the face or the mobile, this geometric object, uh, you do see the sexes diverging, and that's, again, a sign of difference, and the fact that it's there so early suggests that prenatal biology may be playing a role. Here's my last bit, sorry, Hannah, which is I wanted to, to talk about hormones... We've tried to figure out a way to look at the influence of hormones like testosterone in an ethical way in humans. In animals, you could experimentally manipulate the amount of the hormone that the animal is exposed to, depending on your perspective on animal experimentation. But in humans, that would be totally unethical. So what we've done instead is to ask women who are having amniocentesis, where a needle is introduced into that... Fluid in the amniotic sac around the baby if they're having that clinical procedure anyway Can we analyze it for the hormone testosterone? You can see that on average male fetuses are producing more of this hormone testosterone than females are they're just average differences some overlap The reason we're doing this is because from animal research we know that if you take a female rat and expose her to extra testosterone, it does change her brain. So this is a brain region called the SDNPOA, Sexually Dimorphic Nucleus of the Preoptic Area. It's part of the hippocampus. And uh, on the left, you see the neuronal complexity in this area in a typical female, in this case, mouse. And on the right, you see that same animal when she's been treated with extra estradiol one of the estrogens which itself is synthesized from testosterone you can see a quite a visible change in complexity the number of neurons the number of connections between neurons and that change resembles much more the typical male mouse or rat brain in that brain region so the hormone seems to be masculinizing her neuronal development So what did we find? When these children, whose mothers had had amniocentesis and who we had managed to measure the hormone during pregnancy, testosterone, when these children were eight years old, we gave them that empathy test, what we found was that the higher the child's prenatal testosterone levels, the more difficulty they were having in reading faces in terms of what the person might be thinking or feeling. Equally, we found that at eight years old, if we asked them to find that triangle hidden in the overall design, we found that the higher their prenatal testosterone, the quicker and more accurate they were at finding the part within the whole. So the hormone, which is prenatal, seems to be showing a correlation, that's the strongest we can put it, just a correlation with performance on later tasks, which we know show sex differences. We also asked the children to climb into the MRI scanner So we could look at grey matter and particular regions of the brain which are sexually dimorphic, show average sex differences. And we looked to see whether the hormone levels prenatally in testosterone correlated with the size of those regions in the brain at age eight. And you can find a whole set of regions did show correlations. I'll just pick out two of them. The planum temporale, which is a language area, was correlated And so was the right temporal parietal junction, which is a social region involved in monitoring faces to find out what other people are interested in. So prenatal hormones in humans, just as in other species, seem to be having an association with sex differences on average in different brain regions. Before I finish, I want to unpack the terms male and female because they lie at the heart of our debate and argue that actually there are many different ways that we can use the terms male and female. I've counted at least seven different ways that we can use these terms. We can talk about somebody's chromosomal sex, as in, do you have two X chromosomes or an X and a Y? You can talk about someone's genital sex, as in, uh, how do they appear when they're born in terms of their body? And you can talk about what gender, are they assigned at birth, You can talk about their current gender identity. How do they identify? You can talk about their gendered behaviour. What do they show in their behaviour? You can talk about their sexual orientation. And as I've argued, you can also talk about brain sex. For example, do they have a type E or type S brain? And in brackets, I've mentioned some of the medical conditions that allow us to understand that each of these levels can be independent of each other. So for example, Uh, If you looked at chromosomal sex and at the medical condition of androgen insensitivity syndrome, AIS, these are individuals who have an XY chromosomal makeup, so they're chromosomally male. Genitally, they look female. And they're given girls' names, they're raised um, from birth as female. And it's only later, usually at puberty, that it's understood that actually these are males who weren't able to make use of androgens like testosterone so that their bodies remained in the default state of being female. Equally, you can look at medical conditions like congenital adrenal hyperplasia, CAH, girls who are uh, exposed to higher levels of testosterone again, prenatally, because they have a genetic mutation, and their behaviour in terms of their gender identity, they're much more likely to identify as being male. So these are examples of medical conditions from prenatal biology that can change the body, probably the mind and the brain, uh, but we just need to be open to these biological factors. And I've talked about brain sex just at the end, giving the example of autism, that what we find is both males and females with autism are likely to have a type S brain, where their systemizing is at a higher level than their empathy. And again, autism has a genetic component. Uh, It also involves a prenatal hormonal component. Here are my conclusions. That there are sex differences in both the brain and the mind, and they exist on average, and these may well reflect being brought up in a gendered culture. These sex differences, on average, Uh, show overlap between the sexes, that they're not binary, but that culture, which is very likely to be having an influence, interacts with our prenatal biology and that the biological factors exert their effects before culture can shape us. So I'm really arguing for an interactionist view. When I'm arguing for essentialism, I'm saying let's keep in mind there are some essential factors or biological factors that interact with cultural factors. Uh, And I think that the position of arguing for purely cultural factors, which I think Gina's book does do, but I think tonight we may be meeting in the middle, or purely biological factors are actually quite extreme positions. That today in 2019, the interactionist position is much more moderate. And lastly, that when we think about the terms sex and gender, male and female. We need to think about it in a much more nuanced way across at least those seven levels of meaning. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you both very, very much for that. I can see that Gina's been scribbling away. Um, You say you agree a lot, but there's clearly a great amount of disagreement too. So it's now your chance to fight back against that for around five minutes. So Gina, if you could go back to the... I was actually scribbling
3: down ideas for the next book, which I think Simon and I ought to write together. Um, Right. Well, one of the things that Simon and I talked about beforehand is that our experience of these events is that very often it's the questions we're asked from the audience which really bring out the issues and therefore suggested that we wouldn't take the full five minutes. And given the amount of time we've already spent, then I probably won't take the full five minutes. But I will just draw attention to some key issues that came out in in, in Simon's discussion and perhaps elaboration on some of the things I said. I did actually think when we first proposed this debate that I might be going second. And I cheekily thought to myself, I'm going to count the number of times Simon says on average. Um, And actually, that's what I was writing. (laughs) Absolutely right. We must be very careful to establish that we are talking about differences which are on average. Uh, I was intrigued with some of the great data he showed. I'd really like to have seen some more of them, the overlap of the distribution of the data, and some reporting of the effect size. I, I showed you how overlapping data can result in very tiny differences, which are reported as significantly different, but are almost meaningless in terms of telling you much about the two groups who are being compared And I think that's important to bear in mind so that when you're reading uh, research in this area, check very carefully that the scientists concerned are are talking, acknowledging the fact that they're talking on average differences. Of course, what happens very often is that you present a sort of fairly dense, arcane paper into an even denser, more arcane journal, which earnestly gets read by very few people, perhaps the other people with papers in the journal. But what then happens is, because as universities, we're supposed to describe the impact of our research. The marketing team has a look at the paper, picks out a few choice phrases, gets rid of things which they think would be a bit boring, like on average, Um, and then you get a kind of Chinese whispers type effect, where the very careful presentation of data, which Simon has just demonstrated, actually gets diluted, and the message that is conveyed and received and then of course feeds into the very stereotyped culture that I'm claiming is affecting the brain is changed and so I think that's something I would bear in mind and certainly I cannot in any way criticize the care with which Simon presented those data but I would say that there should be a kind of government health warning sometimes associated with it. The baby study, uh, the Connellan study, as he said, uh, I did criticise. I'm not the only person who's criticised that. There are lots of methodological differences in these different studies, which sometimes people who are really interested in, so what is the answer? They don't want to know, actually, we use this kind of titration or that kind of brain imaging or we use that kind of uh, statistical procedure. They want to know the answer. And very often the answer is, if this is a robust effect, then let's see it replicated. So I'd love to see the study with um, babies 24 hours old replicated because I think it's really important, as Simon said, and it would be great to look at the robustness, the strong and stableness of that effect. I was intrigued to see that the early study he reported from Gilmore's lab in 2018 did report differences because that, in fact, the lab I mentioned earlier, where um, they'd reported quite strong differences, and then three years later, using the same kind of techniques, the differences had disappeared. It's the same lab. So it's very interesting that even within the same lab, this isn't a consistent report that's coming out. And I think that's important to remember because, again, people have a very fixed belief about. They've got a male brain or a female brain, and you will get statements. Decades of neuroscience research has proved that men's brains are different from women's brains. They don't say on average, and the message that that difference is conveying is sometimes lost. So I think think what what Simon has said, great data. uh, Be careful of the message that's getting out there. Some really very intriguing findings of genetics and hormones, which will really push... The story forward but I would come back to the very flexibility of the terms male and female which he himself I would suggest perhaps got us confused about in the beginning and has acknowledged the fact that those terms mean different things in different contexts and because that term male and female actually conveys something different to different people maybe we should think about it quite carefully and, and be really clear that are we talking about the brains from men Or are we talking about male brains and acknowledging that that might be different? So I think that's important to note. The only other thing I would say that still the idea that we're looking at sex differences can be very limiting. Quite recently, the last three years or so, funders of research in the States have insisted that, for example, looking at a very basic research into pharmacology, drug effects in individuals, previously have only been demonstrated or developed on male, what we call animal models, on males. Females are complicated, and therefore let's just focus on males. There was a difference with a particular drug, which appeared to cause quite strong side effects in in females because they appeared to be overdosing, because there hadn't been any allowance, obviously developing this drug on, on male models for that difference. And therefore, we're now being mandated by funders in the States that sex is a biological variable should be part of anybody's research unless they've got a very good reason for that not to happen. I'm just mentioning that because the idea that sex is a biological variable, only a biological variable, could well be confusing and it could well introduce some of the confusions that Simon and I generally agree on but sometimes disagree on. I would point out with that study that it was assumed that there was a difference between males and females in the washout rate of the drug and that had a knock-on effect on the, on the uh, prescription levels that were being given to male and females. It then turned out that actually it was effect of body weight and of blood volume, and therefore actually a third of the men who were being tested were also overdosing on the drug. So this is an idea that an idea that this is a male/ female difference when you looked at it with a different variable in mind, that difference disappeared, and the difference that did appear as significant was actually more important to remember. So I think, again, the aspect of the male and female is something we need to remember, something we need to be careful about. And be careful that it's not limiting us. We've got this kind of spotlight effect where we're looking for differences, we home in on differences, we find differences, we report differences. And around all the data that we've got, there are all sorts of other interesting things going on which we might miss. But I think Simon certainly gave you lots and lots to think about, gave me lots to think about, and we'll see what it did to your voting um, tendencies. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much. Simon, I'm going to keep you to a strict five minutes so that we can make sure we get to questions. So, your chance to...
0: So, where I, again, want to agree with Gina is in her statement that we are all different and it's not a function of our sex or our gender. And uh, many of you will have heard of the term neurodiversity, uh, which is uh, a term widely used now in the autism community. But I think we can expand it out to the general population. We are all different in our brain structure, our brain function and our development. And that some of the profiles that we've seen that I was talking about just illustrate some of that diversity. The second thing is about stereotyping. You know, some of the findings that come out of our lab, I think, argue against stereotyping, because you can have males, that's to say chromosomally male, who have a female profile, which is that's to say their empathy is at a higher level than their systemizing, and you can have females who have a so-called male profile, which is psychometrically defined, where your systemizing is higher than your empathy. So to prejudge an individual on the basis of their chromosomal sex, uh, being male or female, would be stereotyping. You can't infer anything about the male or female candidate that walks into the interview on the basis of their sex or gender. You'd have to look at their unique profile. They may be typical or atypical for their sex. A second point I'd make is that we are here in an institution for science, and so we're asking deep scientific questions of are there differences at birth, between males and females on average, or even prenatally. I think those questions have a place in science, and asking those questions doesn't have to have any bearing on the kind of society that we want. So when we're thinking about our society in all walks of life, we may aspire, as I do, and I'm sure Gina does, and I'm sure all of you do, for a society that's based on equality, that we want all of our institutions, all of our professions, all walks of life to be equal in terms of male and female representation. But that's to do with our values, our social values and our aspirations. And that shouldn't prevent us from asking these interesting scientific questions. A third point that Gina made was about the need for replication, and science hinges on replication. The newborn baby study, where you're looking at a face or a geometric design, has only been done once. It's quite a challenging study to do because you have to be on the maternity ward at three o'clock in the morning, which is when babies tend to get born and before the mother is discharged by breakfast. So we, we did that study in 2001. I would love to see it replicated because science hinges on independent replication. The fact that it hasn't been replicated doesn't mean that it's invalid. We just have to wait for independent groups to come along. Gina's last point was that sometimes you find an average sex difference, sometimes you don't, even in the Gilmore lab. And the trick that scientists have to guard against these changing findings is to do what's called meta-analysis. You wait till there are enough studies and you look across many, many studies, sometimes dozens, sometimes hundreds, to see what emerges from a meta-analysis. And in the sex differences literature, that has been done. And that gives us a bit more confidence that on balance, We're seeing average sex differences in certain brain regions, even if they're not always popping up in every individual study. And often, if they don't pop up, it's an issue to do with sample size. You need big data to see some of these small effects. The last point that uh, Gina made was, even if you do find differences, are they just meaningless? They might be small and meaningless. Well, we just don't know what the meaning of those sex differences are. And we should certainly not draw conclusions that one sex is superior or more intelligent. None of the data shows that, but we might still be seeing differences and we don't know what those differences might mean. Okay.
1: Thank you both very much. Thank you for the removing podium. I'm sure you, you have all got... Lots of questions. I certainly have, but it's not my turn to ask them. Thank you. You've both given us a huge amount to think about. Um, we'll just start here. And as I said, can you be quite concise with your questions so that we can get through lots? It looks like we've got a lot. We've got around um, 15 or so minutes to, to get this in.
2: Can both speakers please address Gina's
0: um, contention about the James Damore memo and the Larry Summers controversy and the... Um, Potential differences at the extremes of achievement in things like uh, engineering or science, and the conclusion Gina made, which it seemed to me and others to be a misrepresentation about the conclusions made. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much. Okay, we'll start with Gina. I, I
3: think you're talking about that so called greater male variability hypothesis that's more geniuses and idiots in the male population. <laughs> <laughs> Not oh, my words, I promise. Oh, more geniuses <laughs> and more idiots. Yeah, that's right, yeah. yes. And that's been one of the the focus. Strangely enough, has been on the right hand side. Let's have a look at the number of increased number of male geniuses, and uh, <laughs> um, and and then really what what we're saying is that that seems to be a kind of fixed effect and an, an explanation for why there are so many more male Nobel Prize winners, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Looking at the kind of big data and meta analyses that Simon's drawn attention to has demonstrated that that variability has not stood the test of time or the test of large amounts of data analysis. It varies in different cultures, within cultures across time, etc. But it's a very strong belief. And it's a belief that Larry Summers specifically related to. And you know, three standard deviations above the mean that you, know, that you were likely to find at the, at the top end. I think, again, that's very much to do with cultural effects as well. So just to say the statistical backing of that has not stood the test of time.
0: So I think when individuals make remarks about uh, males and females being more intelligent or you know, uh, particularly the physicist at CERN who made that remark those are very extreme statements and he was quite correctly um, you know, the the public response and the scientific response was to say that those were not just inappropriate but invalid statements. You know, I think the science, whether you're a social scientist or a Biological sciences is simply showing these average differences. You know, the fact that if you looked at the Fields Medal, which is the equivalent of the Nobel Prize in mathematics, most of the winners have been male, tells us nothing because many universities didn't even give women the opportunity to study mathematics or physics or some of the STEM subjects until the 1940s, my university included. So there are questions. But we have to be very cautious in how we interpret some of that evidence.
1: Um, this is mainly for Simon.
3: Um, mm. You encourage nuance. So why do you use the terms male and female brain when you've said in your book that not all men have a male brain, not all yep. women have a female brain? Yep. Is that not reductive to do so? I, I've worked in the news media for some time, mm. um, and I'm aware that you know when papers such as yours at the end of last year reported nuance... And caveats are lost Um, and as you showed there was a you know quite a wide overlap between the emphasizing and systemizing brains.
0: Sure so I mean I'm using the term male brain and female brain defined psychometrically which simply means you take some psychological tests and if the difference between your test on your score on one test and the other is, uh, is a significant difference you're in one category type E or type S and I call those the female or the male brain just because there are more women that show the type e but it's not all women it's about 40% compared to 20% of men that's and more
3: still 60% that aren't
0: exactly so there are lots of people who overlap and that's exactly what we would expect if you're looking at these bell curves where the majority of the population uh, are overlapping what we're identifying is small sex differences we can talk about the effect size or how big are those sex differences. Uh, and we can talk about terminology. I could equally call it type E and type S, less controversially. But they are associated with differences in the frequency in males and females.
1: Sorry, just to bounce back on that. Do people score differently on E and S throughout their life? Like I'm thinking maybe once a woman has had children, maybe she'll be more E than she was before. Or yeah something like
0: that yeah. uh, so you know, Gina made the point that we have plasticity uh, and I would completely agree our, our brains are not fixed uh, so it could well be that either under the experience of having children or under the hormonal change of having children we don't know what the relevant variable is there might be changes uh, in how easily you empathise or how strongly you're interested in systems so change across life lifespan is not uh, is not precluded from this kind of approach.
3: Hi Simon, you said at the end of your retort that um, this wasn't clear what it actually meant these yeah. differences, and I yeah. think it's extremely important. Yeah. And I think this hunt for differences between male and female brains, as Gina has laid out in her book, and others have in their books and papers, mm. has been going on for centuries. Yeah. And if I didn't misread it in your book, you also make some meaning of that by implying that certain professions are more suitable for female brains or male brains. And I think that is very consequential.
0: Sure. So, you know, if you're going to be working in an occupation that is people-centred, it would probably be better if you had a type E sort of brain where you're able to pick up on the other person's emotions, thoughts, and perspectives very easily. Um, so that's about the, the type of profile you have. The, the, I, I call it the brain type that you have, but that's nothing to do with whether you're male or female. And I've made the point repeatedly, not just in the book, but tonight, that you could be male chromosomally with a female brain. You might make a fantastic psychotherapist, for example, because you're easily able to tune into the other person's emotions. Equally, you could be chromosomally female and make a fantastic physicist or car mechanic because you can very quickly understand a system. And the fact that you can have one type of brain in another type of body shows how we can use the terms male and female very differently across these seven levels.
3: I I think I'd just briefly say to that, Mm. um, yes, I agree, but it comes back to using the terms male and female and the downstream consequences of that for what people believe. And I think that, you know, in a way that intersects with the statements by the Google memo and and et cetera. And I think because we get the self-fulfilling prophecy, because if you have a belief that you're a female and therefore there are things you can't do, you won't do those things. Your brain won't be exposed to those kind of experiences. And I think that's where, the the labels are (coughs) important and what they mean to other people. This is why I added in, this is not just about the science, it's about the communication of the science.
1: And we'll come to the the back for the next questions. (laughs) I appreciate it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
0: Thank you very much, my question mainly for Gina. Um, You argued quite a bit against biology playing a major role or those differences being quite small that we see in biology and kind of just implied that the sociological differences or the expectations of society would be particularly relevant. Uh, also, and that's just your last answer right now. I'm aware of a couple of experiments like this where you tell a certain gender that they're worse in one thing and then they actually score worse in this particular task. But overall, on an aggregate basis across countries, one thing that's made quite popular by people like Jordan Peterson is this Nordic gender paradox where you see that in countries like the Nordics, you don't see uh, smaller differences in interests, but more larger differences in interests uh, compared to countries maybe like India where you have... Uh, where women objectively don't have the same opportunities. Okay. Yeah. So what gives you comfort in your thesis? That uh,
3: that's actually quite a long question. and lots of yeah. things in there. First of all, if I gave the impression that I think biology isn't important, that's certainly not the message I meant to give. What I was saying is that, you know, is it always biology in the driving seat or is it biology being driven? And I think that's perhaps something, the message I'd like to get out. The idea about, I think you're talking about the gender paradox that in more gender equal, in inverted commas, countries, for example, the gender gap in representation in science is greater. And there is, it's interesting how the narrative's changed a bit. There's, you know, when women have the choice because economically they don't have to go into high paying jobs like science, then they choose to go off and be painters, I think, was one of the examples I came across. But that, of course, assumes that, for example, science is welcoming, that science has lots of role models for women, that women can see themselves progressing, belonging in science. So I think that is an aspect where the, the social context of choices which may well affect your biology are important.
0: Yeah. And I would agree with you, Gina, that we need to have more role models of both genders in science. Uh, we need to take into account and recognise that there are real uh, influences uh, of these stereotypes. We need to be very careful about language. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we should ignore possible uh, differences that exist between males and females on average before culture has had a role.
3: I don't know if it's statistically relevant, but um, chromosomal variations does that does that lend anything to the inquiry? Is it worth sort of seeing what comes out of you know studies in particular f- for people who don't have the binary XX or XY? Uh,
0: I mean, probably the best well-studied is Turner's syndrome. It's another medical condition where you just have uh, one X chromosome and a missing second X chromosome. And uh, so these, these girls can be separated into whether they got their X chromosome from their mother or their father and do show differences later in life on tests of, of social understanding. So that would imply that genes on the, on the sex chromosomes, particularly the X chromosome, and the parent of origin of that sex chromosome may be having long-term effects on your interests. By the way, the other thing I wanted to mention in all this is about interests rather than aptitudes. It's been mentioned, you know, that in Nordic countries women may now be showing pursuing careers that reflect their interests. The same is true in preschool and in, you know, playgroups and in primary schools that what we what we may be seeing when we see the sexes diverging on average is simply a difference in patterns of interest. The newborn baby study wasn't about aptitude, but it was what do you choose to look at more, a face or a geometric design? And when you think about any group of kids in a primary school or in a toddler group, you will find some kids are making a beeline for objects and playing in a solitary way, and other kids are making a beeline for the peer group and playing in small groups and making a lot of eye contact. Of course, autistic children Uh, maybe an extreme of that where they get over focused on objects and pay very little time to people's faces and these are just reflecting differences in interest I don't put any value judgment on a child who wants to spend all their time with lego bricks and not looking at faces or vice versa they just reflect differences in interests.
1: I think Gina's actually already sort of touched upon the point but just uh, curious how you feel about the the list of the causes of sex differences, and you said Gina kind of sides towards the top and and, and you more towards the bottom, that the scientific studies that you publish then inform cultural influences, and I've heard them used frequently for justifications of different treatments of people, um, and how you can ever truly prove an essential difference unless... Your publications aren't published. Uh, it, it, without the influence of them, how how can we truly see what the effect of nature versus nurture is?
3: Well, I think I I, I think you're never going to be ever to truly see it unless you can do some kind of weird <coughs> thought experiment. Um, one of the interesting ways that people are now looking at um, instead of looking for differences, is actually looking at dimensions and, for example, psychological um, characteristics. There's a lovely paper, I think it's called Are We All from Earth? Or I can't remember what it's called now. But um, effectively, it's taking well known differences between men and women and saying, do they actually work better if you put them on a dimension? And thinking about the kind of behaviors that we're interested in actually might be better if we get away from this difference argument
0: just a a brief response that when I listed the different possible influences on sex differences or brain development, and I put the two social ones at the top, that wasn't to say that the list is in order of importance. Uh, Parental expectations and gendered expectations and so forth are probably having just as much an effect as some of the biological factors that I listed, maybe even more. could even be swamping the effects of the biology, but we can try at least to measure all of them.
1: I'm going to take one more from you, Gap. I wondered whether you know of any research that's been done into kind of brain matter differences or uh, hormone-level differences in those who identify as non-binary? Yes. Do I know of any
3: studies? Yes, <laughs> is, is the answer. Um, it's, it's an area of intense interest, and there are indeed studies, but some of the methodological issues the nature of the population, the size of the sample that you get, the different experiences that individuals will have had can be confounding factors. So they're very difficult research to carry out, but it has been carried out.
0: Yeah, I I can't comment on individual studies of so-called non-binary individuals, but I do welcome the term non-binary just to open our minds to the fact that when we've looked at any of these different dimensions, very few of them are categorical. You might argue your chromosomal sex is categorical. You either have two Xs or an X and a Y. But pretty much all the other levels that we were talking about, including brain sex, are dimensional. And so non-binary. And and individuals could end up anywhere on a dimension or a spectrum.
1: I'm so sorry, because I know there are so many questions and that's because these two have given us a huge amount to think about in the last hour and a half um, but we have to draw it to a close I'm just going to uh, I'm just going to tell you how you voted um, as you came in so again the motion was men and women do not have essentially different brains for that were 109 of you um, against that were 118 of you and 74 of you didn't know. <laughs> so incredibly close. And now we get to see, um, as I said, very polite, but two very you know, ultimately fundamentally different arguments here to see whether you've changed your mind. So if you are for the argument, men and women do not have essentially different brains, um, as argued by Gina. Can you put your hands up really high? <laughs> okay, that is, looks like a pretty... Okay. Okay. Um, And if you are against, put your hands up very high. uh, It's binary. (laughs) I think I think it'd be fair to say probably still very similar, but I think the balance might have been just tipped in favour of four. Just tell me quickly who who changed their minds over the course of the evening. Well done. (laughs) <laughs> a very small That's amount of aware. people. Um, <laughs> That's the trouble with self reports. <laughs> thank you very, very much indeed. And thank you both thank so much. Mind. Really, huge
2: This week's podcast was presented by Hannah McInnes and produced by me, Vas Christadulu. Gina Rippon's The Gendered Brain, The New Neuroscience That Shatters the Myth of the Female Brain, and Simon Baron-Cohen's The Essential Difference. Men, women, and the extreme male brain are both out now. For more debates at the intersection of science and society, visit our website, howtoacademy.com, or find us on social media. Thanks for listening.